Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We're continuing our sermon series on the, the last big section of the book of Romans, learning what it means to be a living sacrifice. So this morning, we're going to be looking at just a handful of verses, be verses 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. So hear the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Father, we ask that you would use these words to minister to us and to show us the path to living sacrifice. Christ's name we ask it. Amen. This is the third time that we've looked at the text of Romans chapter 12. And as we do this, we're kind of building uh, each week a few verses on top of what has gone before. And it's important that we remember what's gone before, because otherwise we're going to look at verses like this, and we're going to make the mistake of approaching these verses the way a lot of people do the book of Proverbs, as if each verse is just a kind of standalone sentiment, and they don't all fit together. There's not a larger point that's being made. But there is a larger point. There is a bigger context that Paul is speaking to here, and to to remember that, we just need to remind ourselves of the ground that we've covered. So we already looked in the first two verses of chapter 12 at the calling that is on the life of every believer. It's a calling to to live your life as a living sacrifice. To be a sacrifice as Christ was a sacrifice, but to do it through the course of your life. That means to devote ourselves to self-sacrifice. It means putting God ahead of self, putting others ahead of self as well. We saw last time the greatest obstacle to a life of self-sacrifice is the sin of pride. And as a result, we're constantly being uh, challenged on that point, redirected, encouraged to be humble. There's a reason why constantly, and again in our text, there are exhortations here to be humble, not to be proud, not to be boastful, because that pride is our greatest enemy in the struggle to live a life of self-sacrifice. We saw also that there's a context or an arena of self-sacrifice. There's a place where we're meant to be sacrificing ourselves, and it is the body or the community of Christ. It is this place. God has brought us together for a reason. Church is more than just an affinity group where a lot of people who happen to believe the same things get together from time to time so they can be with people who are like them. Church is more like a classroom. It's more like a table. It's a place where we are intentionally brought together in order to live the life that we have been called to. In this context, in this community, we sacrifice ourselves, and we do it, we saw before, by taking the gifts that God has given to us 
and by giving them to others, by using the gifts that God has given us and, and benefiting other people. Not building up ourselves, but building up others within the body of Christ. That is the life of self-sacrifice. That's a foundation. And during the course of the next couple of chapters in Romans, Paul will build a structure on top of that foundation. That idea of living sacrifice, he's going to expand it uh, little by little until we begin to see all of the different areas of life that it touches. So we're going to be going all the way from where we're now at the beginning of chapter 12. Eventually, weeks from now, we will get to the middle of chapter 15, and all of it will be connected. All of it will be unified, talking to us about this structure that's being built upon a foundation of living sacrifice, and it's a structure of love. All of the lessons, all of the topics, everything Paul's going to cover, and one way or another is going to be about the call to love. What it means, life in Christ, a life devoted to self-sacrificing love. So as a preview for the weeks ahead, just some of the things that Paul will be speaking to us about. He's going to tell us how to love your enemies. He's going to tell us how to love justice how to love authority, how love fulfills the law. He'll teach us how to sacrifice desire, how to love without quarreling, how to pursue peace and how to stop stumbling, how to love the weak and how to abound in hope. But first, before we do all of that, he begins with the simplest lesson of all, just simply how to love others, how to love others, how to love others, especially the saints, under every circumstance. That's what our text is teaching us this morning. Let love be genuine, Paul says. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. He's teaching us lessons in love. The thing is, you learn how to love by being loved. You learn how to love by being loved. And that's the reason we're so bad at loving, because we haven't been loved particularly well. Paul says, let love be genuine. Those words sound wonderful. Genuine love is something that we've all struggled with. We want our love to be real. We want it to be sincere. But what does that even mean? What would it mean to love genuinely? I mean, haven't you sometimes wondered whether the love that you feel is is somehow counterfeit, inadequate, bankrupt, not really love the way the Bible describes it? Because it seems sometimes like our love has a lot of other stuff mixed in with it. And certainly the love that we've experienced from others had a lot of other stuff mixed into it as well. I love poetry, and obviously when it comes to poetry, this theme of love, real love, genuine love, is one of those recurring themes. Uh, I shared some Jane Austen last week. This morning, I want to please all of you fans of Sir Philip Sidney by reading to you his first sonnet from his famous sonnet cycle, Astrophil and Stella, which is uh, Latin for star lover and star, this uh, romantic group of sonnets about finding true love. 
And interestingly, even though this comes from the 1500s, it contains the answer to the problem of love that is still the answer that we're telling ourselves today. Philip Sidney writes, Loving in truth and fain in verse my love to show that she, dear she, might take some pleasure of my pain. Pleasure might cause her read. Reading might make her know. Knowledge might pity win and pity grace obtain. I sought fit words to paint the blackest face of woe, studying inventions fine, her wits to entertain, oft turning others' leaves to see if thence would flow some fresh and fruitful showers upon my sunburned brain. But words came halting forth, wanting invention's stay. Invention, nature's child fled, stepdame studies blows, and others' feet still seemed but strangers in my way. Thus, great with child to speak, and helpless in my throes, biting my truant pen, beating myself for spite. Fool, said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. For 500 years now, we've been answering the problem of love, genuine love, by saying, look in your heart and do what your heart commands. Trust your heart, trust your feelings, and everything will be okay, which sounds wonderful and in the right mood seems as if it is the answer to everything. But then as a Christian, you start remembering that the heart is deceitful and vain and wicked and cannot be trusted. And the answer that seems to be a comfort, that seems to be the right answer upon study, seems like it's no answer at all. If only it were as easy as just looking in your heart and just doing whatever your heart says to do. But our hearts are a little misshapen by sin. Our hearts are a little misshapen by experience as well. You love Others imperfectly, and have been loved imperfectly. And the problem is you learn to love by being loved, which is why we're so bad at it. We haven't been taught well. We haven't been loved well. So Paul is going to teach us. Paul is going to teach us what it means to love genuinely, what real love looks like, starting with the relationship between genuine love and good and evil. Let love be genuine, he says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And note how strong this language is. He doesn't say, try to avoid evil and put yourself in the path of good. This isn't intellectual language. This is emotionally charged call to action language. Abhor evil. Abhor it. Abhor it. And also hold fast to good. Cling to it as if for dear life. But these are good general moral precepts. You should avoid evil at all costs. You should embrace good. It's the right way to live. We should recoil from evil in its many manifestations, and there are many things around us that are evil. And we should cling to the good and fill our lives with the good and meditate on the good as much as possible as a counterweight to the influence of evil in our lives, because all too often we tolerate evil. We make excuses for evil. We tell ourselves that the evil that surrounds us isn't so bad after all. And often we're indifferent to the good. We like it. We think it's good to meditate on the good, but that's not what we meditate on. 
And we let those good things that we ought to cherish slip away from us through lack of care, lack of attention. Even in our zeal, sometimes our zeal is is malformed. We want to fight evil. And the first thing you have to do when you fight evil is to adopt the ways of evil. You can't fight evil with good. You've got to fight evil with more evil. So we tell ourselves the ends justify the means. If we don't like what other people are doing around us in in culture and society, we've got to fight fire with fire, which is a way of not abhorring evil and not holding fast to what is good that we're all guilty of. But Paul here is not giving us general moral principles. He's not just stating as as an abstract idea that you should avoid evil and you should uh, gravitate towards good. He's thinking here in a certain context, and the context has to do with love, genuine love for one another. The same question we were looking at last week, Paul is still thinking, the life of the community, what it means to sacrifice for one another. What he's saying here is that we should avoid whatever injures others that we should recoil from the evil that does damage to those that we're meant to love. And by the same token, we should hold fast to the good that blesses others, that we should desire the, the thing that benefits others. We should be zealous for the good that builds up the ones that we love. And that's Paul's first lesson in how to love, to hate what destroys the ones you love and to love what builds them up. That's how to love genuinely. You haven't always been loved well. You haven't been loved the way you should have been, not by your family, not by your spouse, not by your parents, not by your children. Your friends have not loved you the way that they should. Your pastors and elders have not loved you the way that they ought to have loved you, your colleagues, your bosses, none of them have loved you the way that they should. Because in all of those relationships, at some point, those people put themselves ahead of you. They did something that that was advancing their own interests at the expense of yours, which isn't what love does. And that's the classroom in which we've learned to love. The classroom in which even at our best, even with those we intend to love, we are determined to love, sometimes we put ourselves first. Sometimes we have to hurt the ones we love. You always do. That's the problem with our education and love. That experience combined with our sinful heart means that genuine love for us does not come easily. It's not as simple as as looking in your heart and, and doing what your heart dictates. We need something else to look to besides the heart. Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is teaching us how to love rightly. Jesus is teaching us And he's teaching us how to love by loving us. Jesus is teaching you how to love by loving you. By loving you. Because love is healing. Love is healing what 
was not loved in you. His love is restoring what was not lovable in you. That's how Jesus teaches love, by loving. Jesus abhors what harms you. He abhors what destroys you, so much so that Jesus endures it on your behalf and defeats it. And thus he teaches you how to love self-sacrificially. Jesus holds fast to what is good for you. He holds fast. He clings to what blesses you. Not only that, he secures it on your behalf and in so doing teaches you how to love one another genuinely. We love one another as Jesus loves us. Self-sacrificially, that's the path to genuine love. Jesus teaches us love and he teaches us This lesson, the way all good lessons are taught, he teaches us around the table. The love that Jesus teaches us is a love for the world, but it is a love that he instills here in the church around his table. The family table is where lessons have been taught for time immemorial. Gathered around the table, the the older pass on wisdom to the younger. And this idea has been codified and passed down to us in in books like uh, Martin Luther's Table Talk, which is a collection of lessons he taught to people who were gathered around his table. Whatever topics came up, whatever the dilemmas were of the day, he would talk about those things. He would address those things. And there at the table, as they broke bread together, the lesson of love was being taught. This is the way Jesus teaches us. That's why it's so important to show up for dinner. Love one another, Paul says, with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. A brotherly affection here is familial love. You were strangers before, but Jesus has now made you into a family. And that familial love, it transforms the nature of uh, all things, but especially here, competition. We have a natural competitive streak We talk about sibling rivalry, siblings always kind of clashing with one another. Well, that rivalry is transformed by grace so that we do strive to outdo one another, Paul says, but we should outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, the way competition usually works is you get ahead of other people and you do it by humbling them. You excel, you exalt yourself, you show how much better you are, and you put them in their place, and they understand that they've come in second or third or whatever the pecking order is, and it's important always for them to know who's on top. Grace takes that whole dynamic and turns it upside down, and now suddenly that energy is going in not to uh, humbling others, but into exalting them outdoing one another, competing with one another in honoring one another, in building one another up. We compete to exalt each other, not to humble each other. And that's the nature of familial love within the body of Christ, which means that the church is not a place for self-validation. Church is not a place where we come to have our gifts honored, to be patted on the back and told how good we are, how how excellent we are. Probably the worst thing that the church can do is indulge 
your desire for self-validation. Find tasks for you to do that make you look good in the eyes of others, that make you feel accomplished, that take whatever dreams were unfulfilled in the world and fulfill them here in the church. That's not what the church is for. It is, in fact, the opposite of what the church is for. This is not a place for you to come and be validated. This is a place for you to come and, as it were, validate others. To outdo one another in showing honor is not only to defer, but to set an example of deferring, of respecting, an example of kindness towards others, exalting one another. That's what genuine love looks like. So you treat others with honor. But how do you treat yourself? How do you regard yourself? Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. In other words, in the practice of our faith, in doing what we do in order to honor God, we shouldn't be lazy about it. We shouldn't be lax. It shouldn't be something we don't devote our whole energy to. Put another way, don't skip the family meal. If Jesus is teaching us around the table, then be at the table. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Be zealous. Be committed. Don't put off self-sacrifice for some other time. Look for opportunities to give of yourself and to build others up. Be fervent in spirit means to be single-minded, to be focused, to be determined, to, to practice love, to devote yourself to love as a calling. To serve the Lord here means to let the motive of all your action be serve Christ. Oftentimes when when people are struggling, when you lack direction, you need kind of some course correction, we'll, we'll talk about that as like, you need to work on yourself. You've been doing so much for other people. You need to take a time out and you need to work on yourself. You need some self discovery. You need some self-care in order to heal yourself. That's the wisdom of our age. Christ has a different wisdom. Sanctification is not focused on working on self. Sanctification is focused on serving Christ zealously, pouring out yourself. All too often, the problems of the self are resolved not by self-examination, but by self-giving by pouring oneself out in service to others, single-mindedly serving one another, resolves the problems of self. It's always a tough moment for a pastor to realize that the point that you're ultimately making is the one that the Beatles made so many years ago, that love is all you need. And... uh, It pains me to say it, but I think there's a truth properly understood that that Paul is pointing us to, that the answer to everything is, in fact, love. As he said in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never ends. Love never ends. Everything else, every good thing does. He speaks there of the resiliency of love. Love endures. It outlasts everything else. The necessity of love. Love is the thing we keep needing, even in eternity when we no longer need the other things that are like crutches to our finitude and our fallenness, love will be the only thing that we continue to need. But ultimately, he's also speaking of what you might think of as like the versatility of love. The fact that love 
properly understood, rightly understood, is the answer to so many varied questions. Love is the only solution that the cross proposes to every problem. Jesus responds to every question with the same answer, which is love. Only love, properly understood, zealously practiced, is adequate to every challenge. So the answer is always the same. It's the way of love. In every circumstance, regardless of the times that we find ourselves in, rejoice in hope, Paul says, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. And here he teaches us how to to maintain what you might think of as a loving equilibrium, how to get through our times in love. Most people rejoice in fulfillment. Most people celebrate when they get the thing they were hoping for. Paul says Christ's people rejoice in hope because the promise is so real and so tangible that we live as if we already have what has been promised to us. Most people despair in tribulation, but Christ's people bear it with patience because if everything is in God's hands, then the hardships that we endure come to us as tests not as reason to lose hope. Regardless of our circumstances, Paul says, we should be constant in prayer, a constant flow of praise and thanks to God. Whether it seems that we are enduring hardship or we are being best to be blessed, we must be constant in our communion with God in prayer. He teaches us not only how to be within ourselves, but also how to be with others as well. And it turns out it's actually quite simple. Where there are needs in the body, we contribute to them and we meet them. And that's a demonstration of love. We show our love to those we've been called into community with by knowing their needs, by meeting their needs. And we also demonstrate and testify to the world the love that we have for Christ by doing these things visibly. And also this, by showing hospitality. In other words, by bringing others to the table. And that note of hospitality is where I want to end because there's a sense in which you could sum up the whole of the Christian mission, the, the whole calling that we have as it relates to the world around us is one of hospitality. What is the, the gospel, the, the, the sharing of the gospel, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, if not a call to hospitality, if not a call to bid others to come to the table, to join us at the table of Jesus Christ where our Savior is teaching us how to love. The clearest picture of love is the hospitality of the table, is the feast where the doors have been thrown open to strangers. You picture Jesus washing the feet of his disciples so that they can never lord it over one another. You picture Jesus at the table presiding over the supper with his disciples. You picture Jesus on the Emmaus Road revealing himself to those disciples in the breaking of bread as he meets them at the table. That is a picture of love. That's how we are to love others, by bidding strangers to become saints.
call of love, to love others, especially the saints, is not one that, that, that calls us to turn our back on the world, but rather it's, it's a call to love that teaches us that by building one another up, by outdoing one another in honoring and exalting one another, we don't just speak within these walls, but we also testify of the goodness of Christ to the watching world. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.